Good morning, uh, Orchard Street. Good to be with you here for one more morning. And uh, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to confess that this uh, this text is a little bit of a challenge for me for a bunch of reasons. I'll get into that in just a second. Uh, probably the biggest reason is that um, for those of you who don't know me, my wife is a foodie. You, you know what a foodie is, right? It's a person who loves to cook and explore different cuisines. And, and when you combine that, the, the fact that she is a foodie, um, with the fact that she keeps a meticulous uh, whiteboard at our house, which outlines what everyone in the family is doing and what the meal is on each and every given day. What that really means is whenever people come over to my house, they stand there and they go, can I come over on Thursday? <laughs> I want to try that. Uh, that. That you might not have known. This one you probably do know about me. I do not eat to survive, I eat because I enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not sure if you've noticed that. <laughs> I, I eat not to survive, I eat because I enjoy food. I enjoy the way it tastes. I don't eat because I'm hungry. I eat because I have cravings. I eat because I'm surrounded by... No, no, it's not even leftovers. No, it's not even leftovers. Uh, 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 what uh, figs with uh, with uh, mascarpone cheese? What kind of figs are those? That's the the kind that you put the glaze. I don't even. She's not going to talk. She's like, you're on your own, Ben. You come up with something that sounds great. Good luck. She'll hang me out to dry. Uh, I don't I don't eat uh, because I need to eat. I eat because I enjoy food. I, and actually, I actually I have a fairly low bar, but you know what you'll never find on our whiteboard at any given time if you go to check out what the meal rotation is? Kim will never put up their bread. What are we eating today, Mom? Bread. And here's why. You need bread to survive. But unless you're... Unless you're on a, a, what's the diet now? Uh, the high carb, low, what was that? Yeah, uh, if you're on a keto diet, then you crave bread, right? Then you're like, yes, give me bread every day. But if you're not on a keto diet or an Atkins diet or some other diet that starves you of carbs, bread just generally doesn't sound like a meal. You can live off of it, but it's not what you're going to be craving every day. And so never do you find bread on the whiteboard. And I actually have been blessed with really low standards because I think the pinnacle of all food is tacos. Now, if Jesus had said, I am the taco of the world, he would have me from that moment on. But he says, instead, I'm the bread of the world. Uh, have you ever, have you ever noticed how two things can sometimes, two different spheres of your life come together and you think this has got, this has got to be from the Lord. I ran across one of those the other day. I've spent um, several years in my life in, as a family minister, so I'm working with families and teaching couples how to communicate and all sorts of things. You're familiar with that book, The Five Love Languages, how people are wired to communicate love in different ways. I ran across this. Let's go ahead and show them that slide. There you go. The Five Love Languages, broken down for somebody like me. I'll give you a moment. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so now the problem here is that Jesus doesn't talk about all of these great foods that you and I love. He says that he is the bread from heaven. He is the bread 
of life. Jesus is bread. Now, we're going to jump into this text in John chapter 6 in just a moment. Uh, and, and and I want us to shift gears a little bit because he's thinking about food in terms that we don't typically think about. It's, it's, it's never a necessity for us. Food is just something that we have. And when he makes the claim that he is the bread of life, Jesus is making a claim that is radically different from what you and I experience in 21st century America, where there's a taco around every drive-thru, right? Okay. So... And um, I'm also going to confess that as we read through this text in uh, John chapter 6, we're going to run into some problems uh, because it's not going to take very long before Jesus' words become really uncomfortable when he says things like, unless you feed on my flesh and drink my blood. Right in the in the frenzy of the Walking Dead and zombie subculture and everything else, you read it and you're like, ugh. And and the Rome it wasn't lost on the Romans uh, because early Christians were actually labeled as a cannibalistic group for a long time because of statements like this and uh, communion and partaking of the body and uh, the blood of Christ. I mean, it was a, a real thing. And here we're going to jump into the text that is probably the most difficult one for us to wrestle through. And I, I, want, I want you to stay with me as we get to the point of what I think Jesus is trying to say here. Um, okay, so John uh, chapter 6. Let's pick it up in, in verse uh, 32. If I bounce around from John, uh, you can know that we're going to come right back to John chapter 6. We're going to be parked in this text most of the time. John chapter 6, um, starting with verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Skipping down just a little bit, starting with verse uh, 47, here's where it gets a little bit more difficult. Again, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. <laughs> I, I, I feel bad, uh, honestly, because you read through uh, the Gospel of John and he is laboring the point. Jesus is trying. He says it at least six different times. I am the bread of life. And we sit there and we try to spiritualize it. And we're like, okay, so what does he mean by that? And I think, truly, if you're reading through John, he really means Jesus is the bread of life. <laughs> He's, truly, I am the bread of life. Oh, good grief. I lost, I lost my place. Where am I at? Verse, somebody help me out. 48. I was going to say, we're going to read the whole thing again. Okay, <laughs> 48. Well, I didn't get far. 51. Okay, there you go. Um, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, he says, is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying,、uh, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink of His blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him." As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me shall also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay, so John labors the point to say Jesus is the bread of life, right? And he says Jesus is the bread of life, exactly like the bread from heaven. That came down when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Now, here's why I'm drawing this connection to you. I want I want you to see this really clearly in the text. He says, "I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. You have to feast on my flesh, drink my blood, in order to receive eternal life. I am it. I'm the source of life for you. Just like, but better than what Israel received when they wandered around in the wilderness." Okay, now you're going to hear this, and you're going to be tempted to take this text and think, "What applies there? It applies there. It connects with this. It connects with this. It connects with this, and it connects with this." And I'm going to tell you right now that your instincts to do that are probably going to really mess up the way you read the text. So, the Bible says Jesus. Is the bread of life. He's the bread of heaven, but he's the true bread of heaven, better than what was given to Israel when they wandered around in the wilderness. So, there is one connection here he's making. I am the true bread of life, not like what Israel received. They ate it, they died. You eat from me, you will not die. Right? The wilderness wanderings. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter two. Try to take a look at the same claim that he made here. And then we'll bounce back to John in just a second. Exodus chapter two, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter sixteen. Wow, we're going to be really confused. Okay, Exodus chapter sixteen,、uh, starting with verse two. It says, "And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel,、uh, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them." Would that we have died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full! For you have caused, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Sounds like my cat in the morning. It's been all night.、Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I am about to rain." Bread from heaven for you. He says, "Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you." Can,、um, 
if, if for no other reason, right? You remember what we talked about last week when we talked about how God led Israel in the wilderness and he gave them water that came up from a rock, right? He, he guided them by day and by night, by a pillar of fire, by a, a pillar of cloud. He led them all through the wilderness. He was their God and they were his people. This was the pinnacle of the covenant for God, that they depended on him. He provided for them. You know, your first clue when you read through what happens with the people of, of Israel that they were truly in the care of God is that their food came down from the sky and their water came up from the earth. Now, I just, I just want to point this out, right? Here they are in the wilderness, and they're not depending on any natural means here to receive water. Water normally comes down from the sky, and food normally grows up from the earth. And here in the middle of the wilderness, God says, all right, <laughs> you think I can't take care of you in the wilderness? Here you go. Food coming down from the sky, and one chapter later, water coming up from a rock in the ground. Right? So here, here's how you know that you're actually in the care of God, is that he'll take these things, he'll give them to you, but he won't give them to you in the way that you expect. Um, he says, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare, um, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as what they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall go and see the glory of God, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? But your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You've heard a word over and over and over again already. Right? It's going to come back to haunt us in John. Uh, that word grumbling. Verse 9, But then Moses uh, said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to, to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, the quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what in the world is this? Two, two Hebrew words. What? It. Man. Ah. Yeah, that English word manna, that's actually, that literally is two Hebrew words. What it? What it? What is this? Right? So they, they see this all over the ground and they don't know what it is. They've never seen anything like that before. And they said, what is it? And that became its name in the rest of Scripture. It's always referred to as, what is it? But we translate it manna so that we don't get really confused, right? That's its name from here on out. For they did not know what to call it. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. And this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall make... Uh, 
you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that uh, each of you has in his tent. And omer is a little bit less than maybe a gallon measured by volume, right? So take enough for you and each person have an omer for the day, right? He gives them a, a rough measurement. Now, people didn't gather just an omer, by the way. They, they, they pushed against this and they tried to see if maybe, maybe they could gather more than an omer, maybe just a little bit more, maybe a lot more. And here's what it says happened. He says, you gather an omer according to the number, number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. It, it, it magically filled to the right amount. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Whoever, whoever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So they went to measure it, and sure enough, the people that thought they got a little bit more had enough. The people who didn't quite get enough had enough. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning, but they didn't listen to Moses. So some of them left it till the morning and it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. Uh, morning by morning, they gathered it as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. In other words, God gave them enough manna every day, only for the day. Yes, but on, Sat on Friday, he gave them, yes, on Friday, he gave them more, Right. Not the point. He gave them enough for every day. When they gathered too much, it was still enough. When they gathered not enough, it was still enough. Now, here's why this is important. We go over to John chapter 6, and Jesus is in the middle of all this discourse about being the bread of life, and he says this is exactly what, uh, this is exactly what our forefathers experienced wandering around in the wilderness, right? God, it, God provided for them the bread from heaven, but I am truly the bread from heaven. Uh, they ate that, and they survived in the wilderness. You eat, and you will not die. They, they eventually died. You won't die if you eat from my flesh, right? So he's comparing what he has to offer with what they received in the wilderness. Uh, and, but this comes in a context. Do you remember what happened right before Jesus started talking about my, my, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, you eat from me and you will not die. You know what was happening right before that? The only miracle I know recorded in all four Gospels. All four of them. Just a little bit earlier, Jesus was gathered around. Do you remember how that went? How, the feeding of the 5,000, how does that go? Jesus is gathered around with all these people, and it gets to the end, and he's like messing with his disciples, and he goes, all right, now how are we going to take care of feeding these people? They start freaking out, wringing their hands, going, this is going to be way too much money to try to buy it. We don't have money like that, Jesus. And then they look around, and they find a source of food. Five loaves of barley and two fish. In my layman's estimation, that is not enough for a crowd in excess of 5,000 people. It is not nearly enough. And Jesus just shrugs and he says, well, go ahead and pass it out, have people break it apart. And they went. And, and do you realize that they never ran out? 
They never ran out. It continued on. Let, let me see if I can get uh, to this this section. He says, Have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in each number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to among those who were seated, Also, so also the fish, as uh, much as they wanted, verse 12. And when he had eaten their fill, and when each had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Now you go and gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. Uh, when they went and they gathered it, they gathered... 12 baskets, right? The miracle's already taken place. We always point this out to kids, that if the leftovers are larger than the amount that you started with, something big happened, right? Uh, Yeah, that's true. That's that's basic math. Uh, There were 12 baskets left over. Uh, 12 is never a number in the Bible without a reason. But what Jesus did in that miracle to feed for the 5,000 was to provide for them enough so that whatever was lacking was not lacking, right? He had given them enough for that. And that, that kick-started everything. Everybody was excited about who Jesus was. They understood that they had seen a miracle. Then he slipped away from them. They had the, the whole Galilee thing. Then he goes to the other side. And then they go and they actually catch up with him. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and they, they finally catch up with Jesus and they start interrogating him on the other side. The context here is this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which looks strangely familiar. It's just a one-off, but it looks strangely familiar with what God did with Israel in the desert. You can go and you can gather and you can have enough. No matter how much you have, it is enough for you that day. Right? So Jesus does this. He provides for them. They eat and then they chase him. Uh, an observation, if I could, before we move a little bit further with this text. When the Bible describes Jesus as a bread of life, in fact, almost every time the Bible describes bread, this isn't a description of opulence. Uh, if you read through the Song of Songs or in the Psalms or other places where they're speaking poetically, you have figs, you have dates, you have pomegranate, you have all sorts of things that people like to eat. Bread is what they eat because they need to eat it, right? And so bread takes on this imagery in Scripture, both in the Old Testament reference of Israel wandering around and eating manna, also in Jesus' prayer. Do you remember how that goes in in the Lord's Prayer? Lord, teach us how to pray. Um, Give us this day our daily bread. People milled their bread every day. It spoiled if they milled it too soon. Bread is something that you take and you prepare and it is enough for the day. It's not a discussion about opulence. Uh, it's, it's not living the high life, but it is God providing for people exactly what they need when they need it. Um, I ran across this, this proverb. In Proverbs uh, 30, I really enjoyed it from Agur, the oracle. Not really well known biblically, but he writes this proverb, Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not before me when I die. And by the way, this is a Hebrew thing. He, he says he's asking God for two, he's really asking for three. God says he hates seven things, he lists eight. Or he says he, li- he hates six things, he lists seven. This is just a Hebrewism. See, he says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me, Falsehood and lying, 
Number one. Number two, give to me neither poverty nor riches. And number three, feed me with the food that is needful to me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane from the name of my God. The relationship of God's people with God is that God provides for them. Uh, But we have this... (laughs) We have uh, this way. Bill's actually talked about this in his classes the last couple weeks uh, and and today. Um, We have this way of peddling the Christian faith as though if you do this, then this will happen. If you pray enough, if you're godly enough, if you're contrite enough, if you, if you expunge sin from your life, then you will be healthy and wealthy and wealthy and wealthy. And by the way, make a donation and I'll tell you who to make the check out to. I mean, it's, it's all over for televangelists and you can find people in the church who truly believe that wealth is still a sign of God's favor and his care. And yet through scripture, this request that God will provide for us just daily bread is not a request for opulence or for wealth or for great things. It's just a request for God's care. And it appears to be needed every day. So, here, here's the bitter pill. Here's the big pill that you're going to have to swallow. You're either going to accept this from me or you're going to go home and study it and then accept that I was right. Or you're going to disagree with me, and that's okay too. Um, I'm pretty convinced that this text in John chapter 6 is not connected with um, the communion. Boy, it sounds like it is, right? Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this context actually is, is highly disconnected from all the other things that we see in regard to the communion. I don't think it's connected with communion in any way. For example, in this text, uh, John chapter 6, God, uh, Jesus doesn't make reference to his broken body. But in Matthew and Mark and Luke and also in 1 Corinthians, where we see the Lord's Supper, in the context of communion, it's a reference to his broken body. But he uses a different language here. It's his flesh, not his body. Right? That's going to become important. Um, he says that he doesn't make any reference to the blood of a covenant, but he does talk about his blood. We see flesh and we see blood. We see eat and we see drink. And we instantly connect these ideas with the Lord's Supper. But in John, in the place, in the Gospel of John, in the place where Jesus would have instituted the Lord's Supper... In the last meal, there is a last meal in the Gospel of John. But strangely, it doesn't talk about that. Instead, in the Gospel of John, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist. He gets a wash basin out and he washes the feet of his disciples. And there is no mention of a cup of wine or a broken loaf of bread. John skips over all of that. So if, if this were a prelude to talking about Jesus' role in, in, uh, in communion, I, I would expect at least John starts connecting the dots over there a little bit later. So I don't think John is actually making a reference here to Jesus, uh, Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood being the communion. I think it's far more basic than that. Uh, oh yeah, and here's the other one. When John refers to flesh, 
in the gospel, he starts off really early on and he tells you exactly what he's talking about. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. When you get to verse 14, he said, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Well, let's leave this up for just a second. I'm pretty convinced that John is more concerned when he talks about feasting off of the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ. He's not talking about communion and drinking a cup and breaking a cracker or a loaf of bread. He's talking about being able to make the confession that Jesus really came and took on flesh. He really came. And in fact, all throughout this text, John, I know, I know this is going to sound crazy, uh, but John actually tells us repeatedly, <laughs> he tells us repeatedly that the bread of heaven is actually the life and the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is the bread of heaven. The life and the teaching of Jesus is the bread. And to feed on the bread or to feed on his flesh is to believe and confess Christ. To believe and confess Christ, not participate in communion. This is in context. Um, now, here's why I think that that is so important, because John is writing to churches that are wrestling with things that you and I don't wrestle with today. Uh, we have evidence for this all throughout the Gospel of John and also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as he wrote those epistles. By the time he wrote uh, 1st John, um, we know that the church was struggling with a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this belief that God is so perfect and the world and all of creation, all of flesh, is so imperfect that God cannot really engage or have contact with it. And there's at least one that we know that was infiltrating the church called Docetism. Because John specifically addresses this in 1 John chapter 4, verse uh, 2 where he says you must confess that Jesus came in the flesh, right? Because there, there, there was this great belief. Sure, I can believe in God, and I can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to, but, but, but to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he took on flesh is too much for me to believe. And so they taught he appeared to be a man, but he was not truly a man. He appeared to suffer and die, but he did not truly suffer and die because God, an all-powerful God, cannot suffer and die. An all-powerful God cannot take on flesh, right? So there's this intellectual challenge that's going on all throughout Scripture. Now, people in antiquity can confess that there is a God, that Jesus is God even, that's okay. But to confess that God took on flesh... That, that was a real challenge. That was an intellectual challenge of the day that everybody fought with. And now John makes a case in his gospel that you cannot give up on the incarnation of Christ without giving up on Christ and his whole mission. He took on flesh. We struggle with the opposite one, by the way. People today can believe that there was a Jesus and they can believe that he was a good man but to believe that he was God. And so when John says, when John, when John tells us that Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven, 
You feast on my flesh and you drink on my blood. This is true food. This is true drink, right? And it leads to eternal life. John is making the claim that we need to see and acknowledge Jesus for who he is as God incarnate, confess him every day. That's the claim that the text makes, I think, on us. Is that we confess and see that Jesus, God incarnate, Let, let, let me read through a little bit of John chapter 6 that I haven't really read. See if you can pick up on this. John chapter 6, um, starting with verse 25. Okay, so he, uh, he gets done talking about uh, feeding the 5,000, and Jesus is on the other side of the sea, uh, chapter 6, verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, Weird, because they just did see signs. But because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe? <laughs> it's like, were you not there on the other side? You saw the sign. It says, says you saw the sign. Um, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread uh, from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you uh, that you have seen in me, and yet you do not believe. So they asked for a sign, and they saw the sign, and yet... Despite the fact that they saw the sign, Jesus fed people. He did all these things. They saw the sign, but they missed the substance of who Jesus is. Throughout Jesus' ministry. Now, understand that this is a problem that we see all throughout the Gospels. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people could see God. They could see Jesus. They could confess Jesus. But they struggled with the confession that Jesus is God. Right? All throughout the Gospels. Struggled with the confession that Jesus was God. They could see him. They could see evidence. They could see the signs, but they missed the substance of who he is. And as you read through the Gospel of John, you're like, how can you miss it? He's like, I am the bread of life. I am. I am. I am. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It's like everywhere in the Gospel of John, like even the beginning, John 1, 1. Right? And yet, people miss this. Uh, verse 36, let's see. Chapter 6, verse 36, he says, there's a parallel set. When John wraps up the entire gospel, at the very end, there's a parallel set of verses. John uh, 6, 36, it says, he says, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe, right? These are people who saw the signs. They still didn't believe in who Jesus was. 
You skip towards the end and Jesus says something eerily familiar. After his resurrection, after he appeared, Thomas wasn't there. He said, I won't believe unless I stick my fingers in the side, right? And finally, Jesus appears in John chapter 20. He's talking. He's talking to the apostle Peter. And Peter places his hands and he goes, my Lord, right? And he says, this is Jesus' response. Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So there's, there's now three categories here. There are the people who have seen and yet don't believe in John chapter 6. There are people like Peter who see and therefore believe. And then there's this other category. That's you and me and everybody else who comes after who's going to have to believe without seeing. Also interesting, maybe worth uh, studying sometime. When Jesus wraps up his time in the Gospel of John with his disciples, it looks a lot like the feeding of the 5,000. He, he, he meets with them for the last time. The entire last discourse is him calling them back from fishing in the Sea of Galilee. They caught a bunch of fish, over 150. And he says, haul them up on the shore. They get to the shore and he's already got a fish bake going on. So he didn't need those fish. And he breaks bread and he eats the fish and he eats the loaves with them. They know instantly that he's Christ again, the third time he's revealed himself in the Gospel of John. And then they finish out the entire Gospel with a setting that looks very similar to the feeding of the 5,000 with loaves of bread and fish. Um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know why. Go get a couple degrees, get really smart and tell me why. John ends the same way. Uh, it seems to begin over here in chapter 6. Um, but, but if Jesus claims to be the bread of heaven, here's what I do know. I know that we have this magnificent testimony Right, that God came to earth. He took on flesh. He lived among us. He died on the cross. He wasn't just a man who's doing this, but it's God himself to redeem us. We have this magnificent testimony before us about who Jesus is. And sometimes I think that preachers, um, church elders, really just about everybody, lies to us. Because we believe that the confession of who Jesus is is something that can happen just once. That we put our faith in Christ, we confess him, we're baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit, and at that point we pay no more attention to the confession that we've taken. We pay no more attention to the faith that we hold, and we treat it as though it's an event that is once accomplished and never more to be revisited. And I'm telling you, if Jesus is the bread of life, if he is the true life like the manna in the wilderness, then this task of putting our faith in Christ doesn't just happen once. It happens every day. It, it has to happen every day. And to buy into this idea that it can only happen once and you can walk away from it and your faith is always going to look strong and you're going to go ahead and walk and be a soldier for Jesus, you're going to, you're going to die of starvation. 
It's literally what's going to happen. You're going to walk away from this one-time event where you placed your faith in God and you are going to die of spiritual starvation because if Jesus is the bread of life and you're supposed to go back to him to continue to place your faith in him, to confess him, to renew your vow to him, if you're feasting on him and he is true life, that happens every day. And that means that for you and I, um, here, here's my, here's my challenge. I want to challenge you to do two things, if that's true, right? If Jesus is the bread of life, and so we participate every day by placing our faith in Him. Two challenges to you. Number one, I dare you to look in the mirror every day and ask yourself, if you still confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that he is the Son of God, and he is the life of the world, ask yourself that. In the mirror, lock eyes. And if you can lie to yourself, you're better than me. Um, But if you can lie to yourself, here's the other one. You ever wondered why God um, established the church? If it really is just this intellectual pursuit, you just need to come to a conclusion. Ah, intellectually, I've decided that I believe in God. I will now be baptized. My sins are washed away. Nothing else in my life really matters. If it's not a fight, why does God call his people together to assemble? Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, you know why we assemble? To encourage one another. Do you know the admonition in Hebrews is to do it every day as long as you still call it today? I really, I really think that maybe, maybe one of Satan's greatest lies is you don't need your brothers and sisters. You don't need the support and affirmation. You don't need to revisit your commitment to the Lord. If you made it once, that's good enough. If you work on your marriage that way, your marriage will fail eventually, right? If you make that commitment to Jesus and he is the bread from heaven, you're going to have to make that commitment every day and encourage one another to do that as well. Uh, and, and like I said, I expect that you're going to go back and you're going to revisit this and say, I've never heard a preacher say something like that. That's obviously communion. And you're going to go and find it somewhere. But I'm pretty convinced that to eat, to feast on Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood is to acknowledge and confess and believe in God coming to earth. And only in that do we place our hope. If that is not where your hope has been placed, I want to encourage you to consider that, to wrestle with it. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm also going to say this. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how easy it is to let 
day after day, week after week, and month after month slip by without assembling and gathering with your brothers and sisters and your saints. It's easy to do because there can always be something that squeezes it out. And it's not just Sunday morning, and this is not just a life group or an appointed assembly. Just this idea that you spend time with brothers and sisters who actually encourage you and reaffirm your faith. It is so easy for that to get squeezed out. And if that happens to you, you will spiritually starve. It is a lie from Satan that you do not need nourishment from your brothers and sisters and encouragement in following Christ. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, but I do know that the invitation is open. It's wide open for you. And if your life isn't where it needs to be, your your commitment to Christ isn't what it ought to be, or maybe you recognize that you've actually been doing that. You've been walking around in the wilderness and there has been no nourishment for you. I encourage you to commit yourself to Christ and to this body or an assembly somewhere and be invested because you need to. Uh, Whatever your needs are, we're going to offer the invitation. Let us know how we can serve you, how we can pray for you in this congregation by coming forward as we stand and sing this song.